I want to dive in this morning to our scripture and into our word. I want to begin um, maybe in a less than traditional manner. We are talking about following Jesus, knowing his story. We're looking at following Jesus in three parts at the start out this year. The first of it being knowing his story that he has given us in the pages of scripture, then learning to hear his voice and respond to him before talking about the stewardship, the management of our life. What has God called us to do with our lives, with our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and the resources he has placed around us. Today is our second of our talking about the story of Scripture. Last week we talked about why is the story important. You can go back and listen to that um, on our website or on YouTube. Today we are talking about why the story is trustworthy, why we can trust the story of Scripture, why we can trust the written words God has given us. And I'm going to try to tackle some of the concerns. If you've come in or you're new to faith or even just wrestling with, we're going to try to hit some of those issues and talk about the authority of Scripture. But I want to begin with an image. Toss it up there. All right, anybody recognize this? Really popular when I was in middle school in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's a magic eye. Uh, if you look at it, all right, how many of you have actually ever done a magic eye before? Oh, wow, wow, that's not that many. All right, here's what you do. You look at the image. I, I also don't know if it works this far away. Um, you look at it, then you let your eyes kind of go blurry, or you kind of cross your eyes a little bit. And as you stare at it and let your eyes go out of focus, a new image appears in the center of the image. Anybody able to do it? I don't know if it works this far away. Let me see if I can do it from back here. This is probably working great for all of you watching the service online as you're staring at me, stare at an image on the back of the screen. If you had this in a better setting and you stared at it, eventually what would be revealed is a beautiful, friendly, little Mako shark. You would see it right in the middle of there. I'll throw it up on my own uh, Instagram afterwards if you want to look at it, but it's not really a big deal. The point of it being, we look at this and it looks like one thing. It's a bunch of busy things going on, a lot of different squigglies, colors, images. If we sit in the image, if we move back a little bit, unfocus our eyes a little bit, try to see the bigger picture of what's happening, eventually a new image appears to us, speaks to us out of the combined images that we're looking at. It's a healthy way to look at the story of Scripture. See these 66 books, these 30-plus authors writing these 66 books over a period of 1,500 years or so from 2,000 years ago. As we look at these stories, these words, these verses and passages, and as we sit in them, we allow God to speak out of all of these combined stories, his one story of what he's doing in leading us back to Jesus. Last week we said that we see Scripture as a unified story both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. We may all have experience now, in fact, I know it's probably common for most of us, that the internet has allowed us a lot more impact on theology or even how we view the Bible than any other churchgoers of any time in my lifetime. We have our own favorite YouTube preachers or theologians. I follow several people on TikTok that do biblical analysis and look at the history and scholarship of it because the internet is both sometimes a monster and can be pretty beautiful at seeing these people work on and digest and argue with each other over scripture. 
We also live in a world where if you go to college and you take one biblical literature course, you can walk out of there saying, all right, I didn't understand any of this. I'm not sure how any of this works together. It's just a bunch of humans trying to wrestle with the things we don't understand. I took biblical literature classes. In my New Testament class, I remember the earth-shaking moment at 18 years old as my New Testament professor told me the four Gospels of Jesus' life are not written by his 12 disciples. And I remember at the time being like, what? No, that can't, that can't be, this is heresy. And then he said, Mark and Luke aren't even names of his 12 disciples. And then my head went, as I tried to realign, how do I understand these? Someone may say to you, if Moses wrote the first five books, how did he write the last part of Deuteronomy after he wrote his own death? How does this even work? You put these together, and sometimes as we grow and we receive these criticisms, we watch these TikTok videos, we sit in classes, and then we start to say to ourselves, can I really trust this work? Can I sit under the authority of this ancient book? There are real questions about Scripture, and there are answers to all of these. We won't tackle all of them today because that's not my goal, but we're going to ask a few questions. What is the Bible? What is it? Why does it exist for us? Where did it come from? Why, why did they hand it down to us? Who wrote it? Why should we trust in it as a form of authority in our lives? If we think about it in 2023, it's honestly for the rest of the world, an odd expression and experience to say an ancient book written by people on the other side of the world is an authority of how I live my life. This book from 2,000 years ago frames how I view life, the decisions I make, what priorities I have, to say that we sit under an ancient book written by these people. We ask this question, is the Bible trustworthy? which is two questions in one. Does the Bible have authority? And is the Bible authentic? Does it have power over our lives and why? And if it does, is it authentically true? Are we getting the real version of this, the real story of it? And I want to give an image I think kind of helps explain this, particularly in our sentence about the Bible here at Pennington AG Church. The Bible's a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. What we're really talking about is that middle phrase, both human and divine. What does that mean? This is an image by M.C. Escher, which I think depicts it pretty well. These are hands drawing their own drawing. And where does it end? If the hands aren't there, does the drawing exist? If the drawing didn't exist, would the hands be there? Are the hands drawing it, or is it a drawing of hands? How do we understand this? It's almost paradoxical, right? In the same way that God has said to us, he is revealing himself through human beings. Human beings are teaching us about God. God is working. Humans are working. They're working together. You can think of one hand drawing as humans, one hand drawing as the divine. That God is working together with humanity to reveal himself. This is the essence of the story of Scripture. God choosing a man, Adam and Eve, choosing humanity. God choosing a man in Abraham. God choosing a man in David. God choosing himself to put on humanity in Jesus. And then choosing humans as the church to tell his story. Scripture is the essence of God and humans working together to tell the story of God and humans. 
Now, the problem with this image is it makes some of us uncomfortable in two different ways. Say you erase one of the hands. Say you put your hand over your eye and you cover out one of the hands there. And you say, well, I just want the divine hand. I, I, I don't like it if it means that humans are interpreting and writing and putting their own input or their culture into it. I don't want that. I want just God's word revealed to me. That's what I want. This view is often called golden tablets falling from heaven. That I want golden tablets falling from heaven. God, just zap it into me. Tell me it. Or you like to think about the biblical authors when they write the Bible, they're sitting at their desk and all of a sudden like a state comes over them and they're shaking and then they just write and what God is putting on their mind, their heart. They have no control over it. In some ways, it's really comforting because God's just speaking it. It's just direct he's giving it to us. Some of us struggle with that. I need to see the Bible that way. If I can't see the Bible as only coming from God and no humans are a part of it, then I feel like it's a house of cards and I pool on it and it might all fall over. For others of us, we put our hand over the other and we say, well, it's just a human book. It's humans doing their best to write theology, to try and interpret all the things in life we can't understand. Early on, we didn't understand what thunder was happening in the sky, so we explained it. And now we don't understand what happens when we die, so we try to write and explain it. And for some, you need that comfort because the idea that there is a God speaking directly to you with authority over your life is scary in its own way. That we don't have our own autonomy in how we decide how to live and move in life. But the Bible is not that. The Bible is two hands working together. It is God and humans, God working through humans. So let's explore. How did the Bible come to be? Where does it start and where does it get its authority from? When someone holds the Bible up to you and they say, this Bible has authority, say, why? What authority exists in this book? We'll start with a quiz. The earliest passage in the Bible where the Bible talks about someone writing the Bible, what passage is that? Do you know? You probably might guess somewhere in the Old Testament, probably somewhere in the first five books, maybe Moses. You would be right getting there. It happens in Exodus chapter 17. It's the first moment the Bible refers to somebody writing something down, writing what we now have as Scripture. In Exodus 17, it's actually a semi-famous story, if you're, if you're um, a reader of Scripture, where the Israelites are fighting one of their first battles, their first human battles after their freedom from Egypt. They're fighting the Amalekites as they're moving through the desert. And God says to Moses, if you hold this staff up in the air, as long as you hold the staff up, you guys will win the battle. But if your arms drop, you're going to lose. So eventually Moses is sitting on a rock holding his arms up and his two assistants are holding his arms, holding the staff up, and they win the battle. Afterwards, God says, this, in Exodus 17, verses 8 and 9, and then I'm going to jump to verse 14. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. It goes on to say after the battle is over, that God then tells him, write this down. Write down what I did for you. Write down that you won this battle. Write down that I saved you. 
You see, the authority of Scripture is not in the words that are written. The authority of Scripture is in the story that they tell. And the story that they tell is a story of God's salvation of his people. And the authority comes from the story that God saves his people. This is the second time that God saves his people. The first time is from the Egyptians. We know this is the story of Passover, God setting them free. And God doesn't give them a story at that moment, not written down. He gives them a story that's a meal. He said, eat this meal, Passover. You had to rush out, so no leaven in your bread. Eat this meal and remind yourselves of how I saved you. Have a meal. Now, the second time he's saying, now start writing it down. Write down because you're going to forget. The Bible is written to retell the story of how God has saved and redeemed his people out of his love and grace. How God has redeemed his people. This is the story of the Bible. This is the authority of the Bible. It's telling the story of God saving his people. This is why the Old Testament was written. God said, don't forget that I saved you. So write it down. So you know who you are, and you know what I've done, and this will form you. Which moves us to the second moment we have of people writing the Bible and the Bible referring to it. Maybe this is the one you thought of. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. It's Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, coming and revealing God's plan for his people. The story goes like this. Then Moses went down to the people, and he repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given them. All the people answered in one voice, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent some of the young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and to sacrifice bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses drained half of the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basin and he splattered it over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. We know this story as the covenant. This is the covenant God makes with his people. This is a covenant so that his people become what are known as priests. They are priests among humanity. They are to represent God's will and plan to the rest of the world. And what they are representing is the story that's written down of God saving them and saving his people. They all agree. It represents the mission by living differently than the rest of the world. It's a storytelling document about a covenant of God's salvation and his people sitting under the authority of the God who saved them. So first he says, write down that I saved you. Now he says, write down that because I've saved you, you have agreed to live in harmony with me, to live in covenant with me. And this is where we see the meaning of the Bible, the meaning of Scripture is that it tells the story of God's salvation and the covenant he has with his people. This is what scripture does. It reveals the character of God as a God that saves humanity. And it reveals the call of humanity 
as being in a covenant relationship with the God who made them and saved them. This is the root of authority in Scripture, that God has saved us and has committed to live life with us. To this end, the Bible is not golden tablets that have fallen from the sky. It's not follow these rules and you won't go to the bad place. Hopefully you'll go to the good place if you follow these rules. That's when we have the golden tablet view. That's the view of it. If I follow the rules that God has commanded, things won't go bad for me and I'll go in the good place and I won't be condemned. That's the view of it. The Bible is not a rule book. So what is the Bible? The Bible is a covenant with us. It's a love letter from the God who made us, expressing his plan for us and an invitation for us to join into that story. The word covenant, Exodus 24, the covenant that comes up throughout Scripture. We're going to look at Jesus talking about it in just a second. The word covenant is most similar to our word now of marriage, to make a marriage vow, to say, I am yours, you are mine. I make this vow to be loyal to you. You make this vow to be loyal to me. And we will sacrificially love one another. I will put your wants and needs above my own. And I commit, I will put your wants and needs above my own. And we will live in this covenant. Scripture is a very long, very complex, very beautiful demonstration of God's marriage vow to humanity. That I have committed to love and save and care for you. And in response, we as humans say, we commit to love and value your authority in our lives. The Bible's authority comes from the story it shares of what God has done for us. Now the history continues from Exodus 24. They are God's covenant people. They're not very good at it. They create a kingdom. That kingdom falls to sin. They are not very good at keeping the marriage covenant. There's a whole Old Testament book where God has a prophet marry an unloyal person in order to demonstrate how humans have violated their marriage covenant to God. They begin to then long for someone to save them. These prophets speak about a new covenant that can be instituted. And this is where it leads, for those of us that call ourselves Christ followers or Christians, that for the Christian, the authority of the Bible begins with Jesus. I don't trust in the Bible as I read the Old Testament. I trust in the Bible because of what Jesus has done for me. What Jesus has done in me and continues to do through me and with me and for me. The prophets lead to Jesus, and then Jesus comes, and in his life, the scriptures are so intimately tied and valued. Jesus loves scripture. He loves the Old Testament. He quotes from it often. He uses it as authority. He teaches out of it. He memorized it. He used it in his battle with Satan in the desert. He quotes from scripture. He fulfills portions of it, refers back to it. After his resurrection, he patiently spends hours going over the Old Testament, teaching two disciples to see the story of what God is doing. Jesus loved, trusted, and valued the authority of the Bible. And so being a follower of Jesus means we take Jesus as he is, holistically, all of Jesus. 
We often want to take one part of Jesus. I love Jesus fighting for mercy and justice. I want that part of Jesus. But I don't love his sexual ethic. I don't love what he says to me about my money. Or I love that Jesus has all these rules for how to live to be successful. But I don't love all that he asks me to sacrifice. I love that Jesus comes to me compassionately and is my friend. But I don't love that Jesus asks me to submit to his authority and under the authority of this big ancient book. But if we want Jesus, we take all of Jesus. We take all of who Jesus was and is. Because we see Jesus in Scripture also make a covenant. Jesus also tells us what he has done and why to stick with it. We practiced it this morning. Matthew chapter 26 verses 26 through 29, we have a new covenant hearkening back to Exodus 24. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. They broke it in pieces and they gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Not just as Jesus making a covenant, and the reason why we read all of Exodus 24 beyond the part about writing is that Moses continued in that and said, this covenant will be bound with blood. He brings the blood of the bulls and the rams and sprinkles the blood. Jesus says, the covenant of my authority will be made with blood, my own blood, given for you. This is the testimony of my authority, is what I have done for you and what I am doing for you. I am offering to my people salvation from death and sin and eternal disconnection from the God who made them. And the authority is in what he has done and continues to do. My allegiance is not to a book. I don't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. I believe in Jesus. And my allegiance is to Jesus. My allegiance is to the God who came and put on flesh and walked among us. My allegiance is to the God who demonstrated his character by loving the vulnerable, caring for the marginalized, healing the sick, triumphing over the chaos of even weather and storms and chaos we live in, and then gave his life for me. And I submit under the authority of Jesus. And then Jesus tells me that his authority is found in the scriptures. He says, study these pages, study these words, and know who I am. Know my story. We know Jesus because of the story he tells us. We know him because he is revealed in scripture. Jesus doesn't give us any writing. There is no writing by Jesus. There's one story where he writes in the dirt. Obviously, that gets washed away pretty quick. We don't have writings by Jesus. What we have from Jesus is a meal to remember him, is the covenant of the bread and the cup. We have a meal with Jesus. And what this means is the story of Jesus, his authority is touchable, is tasteable, is seeable, is sensible. We walk into and experience the authority of Jesus every moment where we eat the bread and drink the cup. But then Jesus continues. How does this connect back to the scriptures? Matthew chapter 28, 
verses 18 to 20. Some of Jesus' last words in the Gospels. Jesus came and told his disciples after his resurrection, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know this passage, and we quote from it often. We use it every time we do baptisms. We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Famously, in modern churches, we stop at that verse, and we don't read the next verse that Jesus gives us. The one I have pointed out, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. But Jesus didn't write anything. Do we have any words of Jesus? Do we have any commands from Jesus? Do we have what he taught? Absolutely. We have four versions of it. We have four gospel stories of what he taught and what he did and how he lived and how we should live as humans and what is important in this world and who he is, his authority, and what he's doing. We have four full stories of it, of what he did, what he taught, how he confirmed the story. And then we have, in the same way of the Old Testament, we have the rest of the New Testament, which is the new covenant people exploring and wrestling with and understanding now how to live under the authority of Jesus. We have the authority of Jesus demonstrated in the Gospels, and then we have the epistle letters, the book of Acts, teaching us now what it means to live under the authority of Jesus, what it means that my body is now not my own, what it means that my money and resources are now my own. What it means that my view of people and gender and life and politics and economy are now no longer my own. They sit under the authority of Jesus. How do we wrestle that out? And these are big things to wrestle. There are letters of churches arguing with pastors on how to live this out. There is very little new under the sun for us when it comes to the authority of Jesus. There is lots written and wrestled with. That Jesus has authority over us. Why do we trust the authority of the Bible? In three simple steps. I trust the authority of Jesus because of the character of who he is and is demonstrated. Jesus' authority is expressed to me and revealed to me in Scripture. That's how I know his story. That's how the early church passed it down to us. That's how those closest to him told the story. And so the story itself in Scripture invites me to submit under the authority of Jesus in his Scriptures. I trust the authority of Scripture because I trust Jesus. Jesus' story is revealed to me in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And in that story, my life is called to sit under the authority of who God says I am and what he says is important and how we are to live our lives because he has promised us eternity by his blood and resurrection. This is why the Bible is authoritative because we sit under the authority of Jesus. Having said that, what makes it authentic then? This will be much shorter. All right, so the Bible has authority. Why do I trust that authority? You may ask questions 
Why are there so many versions of the Bible? Why are there so many translations? Some of the translations disagree with other translations. They're not wording it the same way. John doesn't frame things the same way Mark does. How do I understand? If humans wrote this story of God's life, and then humans translated it for thousands of years, how do I know I am getting the authentic story of what God wanted me to get? How do I know this? How do I know it's authentic? Why can I trust it? If you're asking those questions, I'm just going to tell you right now, those are welcome good questions. They are not questions to be suppressed or to push away. We don't serve in faith without our minds. We bring our minds and our hearts into faith in Jesus. Bring it. Scripture can handle it. God can handle it. 2,000 years can handle it. Some of the greatest minds that have ever lived are people who lived and understood the authority of Scripture. People like Augustine of Hippo, people like Martin Luther, people like Thomas Aquinas, people like C.S. Lewis, who built their lives under the authority of Scripture and are literal geniuses the world respects and trusts. They trusted in the story that's been passed down. I'm going to show you a few pictures that I think give some credence to the authenticity of Scripture. First one up here is called the Leningrad Codex. Looks kind of crazy, a lot of words. It's written in Hebrew, so it's even harder to understand. The Leningrad Codex is a thousand years old. It is the oldest complete copy of the Old Testament that we have. It's the oldest copy of it in one whole thing. And every time we translate, every translator comes back to the same source. No one's translating from each other. Very rarely is that the case, but almost all translations are people going back to this text, back to a thousand years ago, translating again, doing the hard work again. In 1000 AD, in Cairo, this was created, and we still have it. You want to know what's cool about it? Not only that, but if you look at all the little squiggles in the margins, those squiggles in the margins are scholars at the time wrestling with the authenticity of Scripture. It's them writing little notes. Hey, this part, I'm not, I, I don't know how it aligns with this other part. Hey, this person translated it this way. I'm translating it this way. This is how I understand it. They're doing the same work we're doing now a thousand years later. Wrestling with it, authenticating it, struggling together, moving Scripture along. Every translation we have is translating from this codex. But you may say then, Okay, but that's a thousand years old already. So what happened in the first thousand years? How do we know Scripture is trustworthy from the birth of the church to a thousand years? I've heard lots of stories about Constantine or the Crusades and the Middle Ages. How do we trust this? What's amazing about modern history is the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the middle of the 20th century. Middle of the 20th century, a few young children around 10, 12 years old are hanging out in caves in Palestine. They're exploring. They're playing as young children tend to do. They're running in caves, and one of them brings back into the village this pottery with some scraps of paper on it, and he tries to sell it. He sells it. He goes, this might be worth something. And so he sells it to somebody. It passes to another person. It passes to another until it reaches the scholars who study this, and someone goes, oh, my God, where did this come from? This is perhaps the oldest version of the Hebrew Bible anyone has ever seen. Where did this come from? So a bunch of kids playing in a cave. They go, they explore back to the caves, and they find dozens of jars holding hundreds of scrolls and papers from the very first century A.D., the century of Christ's life. We have detailed copies of the entirety of the Old Testament, 
from 2,000 years ago. And they took those scraps. You can see it behind me. They held it up against the London Codex. And they said, it is remarkably, shockingly, supernaturally similar to each other. It confirms almost 99, 98% of what we have from 1,000 years later confirms what they had at the time of Jesus' life of the Old Testament. Are there differences? Yeah, sure there are. It's humans and they're writing and they're wrestling and they're working. But the shocking confirmation of what they discovered gives such credence to the authenticity of the book we're studying. Believe it or not, it comes from the people who wrote it who believed it. We have the accurate story of what they held. Should differences in the story frighten you? Should differences in biblical texts worry you? If a biblical text is different, telling a story different, should that worry us and worry our faith? Absolutely not. Because it's a book written by God and humans. God writing through humans in their culture, their context, their personality. It's a work of God and humans together. Think about it as ripples in a still pond. You take a large boulder. You toss that boulder into the still water. It hits and you have ripples moving throughout the pond. Those ripples look different right near where the boulder hit. They look different far away from where the boulder hit as the ripples move along. And we have access and stories of Scripture from 100 years, from 300 years, from 500 years before. And as we see Scripture move along, we see people wrestling with, talking about, examining the story as it moves along. It is the beauty of this book from the beginning in Exodus 17 that God is telling his story through human beings, that the Bible is a partnership with humanity and God, sharing the story of God's authority in our lives through Jesus Christ. I'll give you two more of my favorite scraps of authenticity, quite literally. First image, toss it up there, is a scrap of John, the Gospel of John, from around 120 AD or CE or however you'd say it. This is a scrap of the Gospel of John we have from within one generation of when the story was written. We have a copy of it. We have parts of it. They were found in a garbage dump in the bottom part of Saudi Arabia that had been there for thousands of years. They started digging it up. They found millions of scraps of paper. All of them have been reassembled or translated yet even 60 years later. They think it'll be another 80 years before they're all put back together. And what they found throughout was paper after paper after paper because it was a garbage dump. And in those papers, they found scraps, the earliest scraps of the Gospel of John. And they held it up to the Bible that we have and the translations that we have. They said, it's remarkably similar again. What was written in one generation after the story was told, is the same story we have nearly 2,000 years later. Second image is a scrap from Paul's letter to the Colossians from about 140 A.D. of Paul's writing to them, wrestling with them. And we know the church was passing it along, copying it, writing it, sharing it. And what was written in this scrap that they found was shockingly similar to what we have passed along, confirming the authenticity we have over 6,000 fragments of ancient New Testament letters. 6,000. We have more scholarly work and archaeological evidence of the New Testament than any ancient book ever written. The problem for people is that the story is so fantastical. 
We have so much evidence, but the evidence says a man was God, died and rose from the dead. And so it's hard to believe that story, even though the evidence tells us that those who wrote it firmly believed this story. To the point they defended it and gave their life for it. The Bible is divine and human. And as humans wrote it, protected it, translated it, passed it along, I believe that the Holy Spirit and God's divine presence guided them to the point where we have it today. So we can read it in its human context, what was happening in their time, but to know the divine authority that God is speaking and protecting through it. To this end, I want to give you a practical piece of advice. Last week when we talked about Scripture, my encouragement to you was read your Bible. A lot of this first two parts of this series can be summed up as that. Read your Bible. Make a plan for it. Read it at home. Read it alone. Make plans for what you're going to be studying and knowing and reading in Scripture. We have three Bible reading plans that we recommend. You can grab any of those resources in the lobby. You can grab all of them online on our website. You just go to resources. You can go and see them. Read them. Follow through them. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of beautiful reading plans that you can read on your own. But my encouragement today is do not read on your own only. Read with others. Study scripture with others. The Bible is meant to be shared and to be passed along and to be wrestled with. This is why our small groups at Pennington AG Church practice what we call inductive Bible studies. OIA, the method. Um, observe, interpret, apply. You walk through it. What's happening? How do we understand it together with a group of other people? When you study scripture alone by yourself, that's how new religions and cults and crazy people get started. We read it together and examine together. I often will say, hey, this is what I'm reading. Am I off? Do other people also get this? Is this what they feel like God's speaking? We work it and we wrestle it together. We have five different small groups. You can join any of them. You can find them also on our website or in our lobby. Please, in studying scripture, do it with a community of others. Walk that journey together. The scripture is authoritative because it shares the story of God's salvation of his people through Christ Jesus at the center of it. And Jesus' story his beautiful story of our salvation, his grace and mercy and kingship is told in the pages of this book. It is authentic because the Holy Spirit has guided so much evidence, so much rigorous study to bring the book to us today. I want to close in this reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. I don't know if it was on the scrap that I showed you earlier. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of his authority and will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives you so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him. In every way. Church, as we move through this study, next week we're going to start talking about how we hear the voice of God, how we respond in our lives to Him. But I do not want us to rush past the necessity of grounding ourselves as a community in the story that God has given us. To say, as a church body, we are a church, we worship Jesus, we live out His mission because we sit under the authority of his story 
His story as revealed in Scripture. His story as told from Genesis to Revelation. That we know Jesus and we sit under who he is. We can disagree and wrestle with a lot of theology, a lot of culture. But to say as a church body that the rules of that engagement are the story God has revealed to us in the pages of his scripture. And when we talk and when we laugh and when we share together, I want to see in our church body so much more our connection through scripture. I know the drill because I'm in my mid-30s, that when I'm meeting up with friends, after about 20 to 30 minutes when the conversation lulls, what comes up? What question? What are you watching? What are you, what are you watching? Have you watched Wednesday yet? Oh, well, what are you watching? Have you seen this documentary? Did you see the documentary about the volcano? It's crazy. We start talking about that. What are you watching? But to say in the church, hey, what are you reading? What's God been speaking to you? Story of Jacob is crazy. How are you processing that? Paul arguing with the Corinthians. What, what do you think of this? When you're reading Romans, how do you understand this? That scripture is pouring out of us and it is the common language which, which binds us is this story and the knowledge and the love and the authority of it in our lives. Church, if you can, if you stand with me all over the room. In a moment, I'll just give you space to just pray through, respond to, commit to this call and this charge. At the end of service, we'll have elders on the left and the right. If you need prayer, we are here to pray with you. If you're going through stuff, physical, emotional, otherwise, and you need someone to pray with you, we believe that when the elders gather and pray, the Spirit moves in us. But I want you to, as the team leads in this one final song, be praying about does your life sit under the authority of the story of Jesus? Do we submit ourselves under God's authority for who we are, how we live, and where this world is moving? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us, challenge and guide us. May we live under and with your authority. We love you, Jesus. We are grateful that we have your story. May we know you more deeply as we study, as we discuss, as we submit to your story. In your name.